Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Advent, it comes from a Latin word. It means to come or to arrive. It's a season of preparation for the coming of the Christ child. And the church sets aside four Sundays. That's quite a bit of time. Preparation, especially for major events, can be an anxious time. Did we clean enough? Did we decorate enough? Did we get enough food? Can the refrigerator hold anymore? I don't know if you're aware of it, those of you who read on a Kindle platform, but Amazon actually tracks the passages that you underline in your text. Sort of a public marginalia, if you will. As of November 2014, the most highlighted passage, and most is an understatement, it's twice as often as the runner-up. The most highlighted passage comes from the second volume of a trilogy entitled The Hunger Games. This is the passage. Because sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them. Close quote. University professor Mark Schiffen comments, it's easy to see why The Hunger Games is the novel of a generation. The trilogy depicts adolescents rigorously trained by adults for desperate but meaningless life and death struggles. It resonates with students who worry that they're all honed up with no place to go. They rack up majors and minors, certificates and internships to keep themselves in the running. They clothe themselves with the armor of achievement that they hope will protect them against uncertainties. Uncertainties in the job market, of course, but also deeper ones, uncertainties about their status, their identity, their self-worth. They're trying to gain control over an uncertain future. Preparation can be an anxious time. For Jesus, however, there's no uncertainty. I mean, omniscience kind of firms things up a little bit. But notwithstanding, notice how much care Jesus makes in the preparations in our text for Luke 9, in Luke 19. It starts when he drew near Bethany and Bethany, and he sends two of the disciples into the village in front of you, presumably Bethany, and there they're going to find an unridden colt. They're to loose it, and they're to bring it. If anybody asks, what are you doing? They're supposed to say, the Lord has need of it. That's the key point in both the preparation part of our text and the actual narration of the events. The Lord has need of it. What need? I mean, you know the story, right? Jesus intends to ride this colt down the hill into Jerusalem. Yet for three years of his ministry, starting on the other side of the Jordan in the wilderness temptation, and then throughout Galilee and back and forth across the Sea of Galilee into Decapolis on the eastern side of Galilee, he walked. Other gospels even include a trip into the north and east into Tyre and Sidon, and he walked. And then, starting in Luke 9, 51, we read, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem via Jericho, which, of course, wasn't on the way. And again, he walked. And now, after how many miles he wants to ride the last two? Well, part of preparation, part of Advent preparation. The preparation for the advent of a king, in fact, the king. In our context actually sets us up for this. Verse 28, the first word of our text begins, 
And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. These things are Luke's version of the parable of the Minas. And the setting for that parable is critical for our text this morning. Chapter 19, verse 12, we read, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. He's going to receive a crown, to become, to be a king. Now, the content of the parable is all about the faithfulness or lack thereof of his servants, and that's important, but not for us this morning. What we need to get to is the chilling conclusion, the verse immediately before our text. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, to be their king, bring them here and slaughter them before me. With that ringing in our ears, we come to our text and a rider on a donkey coming down the descent of the Mount of Olives. And the whole multitude of his disciples are there. Luke depicts a growing, a swelling throng from the 12 in chapter 6 to a small band in chapter 8 with the addition of the prominent women, and now a whole multitude with their acclamation from Psalm 118. And all four evangelists agree on the text. Literally, from the Septuagint, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But notice what Luke does. He adds something. Blessed is the one who comes, the king. Zechariah 9, 9 jumps to mind, which was part of our gradual this morning, right? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, full of a donkey. Jesus' preparations are Advent preparations. Preparations for the coming of the king. And the king did come, only not as one might have expected it, or not on time, if you want to take up Chad Bird this morning. Mary was caught completely off guard, right? How will this be since I'm a virgin, she asks. And Angel Gabriel explains, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the whole Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so we confessed in the Nicene Creed this morning, right? He was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. Joseph also was caught off guard. Matthew 1, and her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But again, the angel of the Lord came and explained that that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So he took her into his home and later to Bethlehem. And there the king was born. And there he was laid in a manger, attended by cattle, not royal courtiers, visited by shepherds, not heads of state, hardly a king-like beginning. And the king came of age, but there was no crown adorning his head. He walked, as we mentioned earlier. He taught in the synagogues and in desert places. He performed the mighty works mentioned in our text. So is he really a king? All of that comes to a head in Luke 22, when the council demands, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Jesus makes Advent preparations. So do we. 
But my question for you this morning is, what are you preparing? Well, there, there are certainly secular lists. There's cards and presents, turkey and dressing, a tree and a wreath, and mountains of cookies. There is a Hunger's Games intensity about all of this, right? Anxious times, keeping face and pace with the world around us. There's also a sacred list. Christmas texts in the cars that we send. With caroling and vespers, sacred time almost doubles during Advent. There's the Christmas program. And, and Christmas Eve, of course, one of the, the two high points when it comes to attendance in the church year. But the true Advent list has only one item on it. It's you, or better yet, your soul. Your heart and my heart need to be prepared. We do well to imitate the unnamed disciples in verse 22. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Just as he told them. Listen again to some of the words, a portion of our psalm, Psalm 25. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Your paths, your ways, your truth. Advent preparation is to consider these and to compare them to our heart and our thoughts and our actions. It's not boisterous and busy, but quiet, reflective. And it leads to contrition and then to confession. And finally, with the publican, to a simple plea. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. A letter-sized piece of paper is what, 8.5 by 11, right? Or 93.5 square inches. Most teachers require one-inch margins for class papers, for essays, right? It's the standard we've become accustomed to. But have you ever stopped to consider what percentage of the piece of paper do those margins constitute? Terry Lanhart comments, when I ask people, most answer somewhere between 15 or 25%. But a one-inch margin on a standard piece of paper is 37.4% of the paper. Almost a third, over a third of it is given to what? Nothing. The white space. And that's just around the edges. If you double space your text, over half of the paper is given to white space. The empty border helps us to focus on the printed text. It creates a comfortable feel for our eyes. And, you know, stylish magazines and advertisers know all about this. There's plenty of space around the images and text to help us focus on what they want us to see and ultimately to buy. Sometimes people think that margins or white space are wasteful and inefficient. They pack as much print as possible onto the page. Have you ever seen a page packed top to bottom and side to side with text? I mean, you get tired just looking at it and you haven't even started reading. White space helps us focus on what matters. White space means stepping back from the secular lists of Advent preparation for a little while. Even some of the sacred lists need a little white space in there. White space to prepare our heart and our soul and even our body for the Advent, for the coming of the King to make a personal connection to that directive in the text, the Lord has need of it. 
and the king did come, in less than a week from our text. And to the king, a crown, not one out of gold, studded with precious stone, but one twisted out of a briar and thrust on his head, pushed down for good measure. See your king, wounded for your transgressions. And for the king, a throne, not one inlaid with pearl and upholstered with velvet, but a crude Roman instrument of torture. Hear your king, father, forgive them. And because he is a king, a tomb. The Romans just left the bodies on the cross as carrion for the birds. The Jews pulled them down before the Sabbath and threw them into Gehenna, a word we normally translate as hell, literally a dump outside the city walls. But Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came, and they took down the body, and they laid it in a new tomb, like the colt, one never ridden, one never laden, set aside for royal use. Honor your king in reverent silence. You are redeemed, for the grave could not hold him. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Advent season is a season of preparation for the king that came twice, in the manger and then in our text that culminated in his death and resurrection. But the Advent season is also preparation for the king that also will come, and his resurrection into which you were baptized is the guarantee of our resurrection and the resurrection of our loved ones fallen asleep, which we've had pause to reflect over these last couple of weeks with so many deaths in our family. Jesus fulfills our need for salvation. Well, I started with Amazon. Probably a good place to end, right? The Hunger Games may be the runaway winner in highlighting, but what, you may ask, what about the Bible? What's the most highlighted text? Now, this is on a Kindle platform. It's not John 3.16. It's not the 23rd Psalm. It's actually from Paul's letter to the Philippians and us. These words. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. May you have this peace, this Advent preparation. Amen.